Small details are big surfaces. Tight corners are odd shapes. Flat, rounded, textured, or tall. Whatever your next project, there's a spray paint pattern that's just right. Because Rust-Oleum's new Custom Spray 5-in-1 gives you control with five different spray patterns. So you can tackle nooks, crannies, edges, and curves without worrying about drips, runs, uneven coverage, or anything else. Custom Spray 5-in-1. Only from Rust-Oleum. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app, you can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with code PROGRAM for a 4-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's Stamps.com. Code PROGRAM. It's a tricky business trying to unravel the reason for Anne Boleyn's sudden fall from grace and her beheading in May 1536. The official reasons wither under scrutiny. The surviving sources provide dissonant accounts that feel practically unreconcilable. The accepted version of events has great holes in it. It is the conviction of today's guest that the fall of Anne Boleyn cannot be understood by reference only to the immediate preceding months. My guests are set out, therefore, to move through the events of Anne's life from the spring of 1535 to draw out the family tensions, diplomatic doubts and merrymaking of Anne and her spouse, King Henry VIII, in the whole final year before her execution. Such a focused, micro-historical and broadly chronological approach helps enormously with understanding the circumstances that led to tragedy and reveals insights that have not been perceived from any other angle. It is the work of Natalie Gruniger in her first solo book, The Final Year of Anne Boleyn, which she'll be talking to me about today. Natalie will be familiar to Tudor fans from her website on thetudortrail.com and her spin-off books with Sarah Morris in the footsteps of the six wives of Henry VIII and in the footsteps of Anne Boleyn. She's also the host of the wonderful Talking Tudors podcast. Natalie, it's always a treat to be joined by you, and particularly today because we are celebrating the publication of your new book, The Final Year of Anne Boleyn. Congratulations. Thank you so much, Susie. So lovely to be here as always. Why did you decide to write this book? What was it that sparked it? What was the impetus behind it, I suppose? So, as you know, I think I've been researching this period quite seriously since 2009. So, in that time, of course, I've heard a lot about, you know, Anne's downfall in that period. There have been many documentaries, there have been some other books, and I just always felt that there was more to say, I suppose. And I also realised that it was usually focused on the last few months when we looked at her downfall. And I really felt that putting that into context and perhaps widening the perspective and looking at the last 18 months of her life would offer some important insights. And I did, in fact, find that. So I suppose I also wanted the opportunity to delve into these sources myself. You know, it's very easy just to kind of fall back on the great professors and the people that have come before us. But I wanted to have a chance to look at everything myself and to come up with my own kind of ideas. And that was a scary thing to do. And it was quite a, a stressful thing as well, because of obviously the brutality of it all. But I did find that that was a really thoroughly enjoyable process as well, I suppose, in the end. And I felt that I got to know Anne a lot more than I had previously. Well, I'll be asking you about some of your conclusions about Anne as we go on. But I completely agree that when you get into the primary sources, it's like you're taking off layers of varnish on an original painting and then suddenly you can see it in all its clarity and beauty. That's so true. Such a good way of putting it. And I think I had that moment, you know, so many moments where I was just astounded that I had thought something because I'd read it many times and found that it was 
completely untrue or at least not grounded in contemporary evidence. Yes, good way of putting it. So you start early in 1535. And why did you pick that moment to start? I think I just had to kind of pick a moment, though I do start, as you say, in early 1535, but I did need to kind of go back into 1534 in order to clarify a few things. There are obviously a number of parliamentary acts that come out in 1534 that are really important to this story. So I kind of jumped, you know, in there as well, just to give that context. But I think 1535 is just such a crucial and telling year. There is so much going on for Anne and Henry in that particular year. And there's a lot happening that I think goes some way to explain what happened in May 1536. So I decided to focus there, but I'm also dipping into the previous year as well. And one interesting thing that you bring out in your book is, I suppose, what we can find out as a result of those acts from 1534 that you mentioned, which is something of the public reaction to Anne. You give some wonderful examples. Tell me a bit about how the public felt about Anne and what had happened to Queen Catherine. Absolutely. So maybe I'll just briefly just mention, so in 1534, we have the Succession Act early in the year that comes out, and that formally recognises Anne as Queen. It also forbids Henry and Anne's subjects from appealing to Rome. It pronounces Henry and Anne's children as the legal you know, heirs to the Tudor throne. And it also stipulates that Catherine of Aragon can now only be referred to as Dowager and not Queen of England anymore. Now, in order to sort of ensure the stability of that particular act, a little bit later in the year, we have a new Treason Act. And there's some really great sort of contemporary quotes about that and the sticking, as they quoted, of the act when it was trying to pass through the lower house. So people were very upset because this was the first time that words had been made treasonous. So now just speaking and calling Henry names or Anne names can land you on the scaffold, basically, high treason. So there's a lot of people that are very upset by this new particular act. We also, of course, have the Act of Supremacy that recognises Henry as supreme head of the church. And there's also another act respecting the oath. So when the Succession Act comes out, Henry's subjects are also required to take an oath to basically swear they're going to uphold this particular act. The oath isn't specified to quite a bit later in the year. There are four very important parliamentary acts that come out and create this atmosphere of suspicion. People are just suspicious of one another. And you were referring to, yes, the public response to this and is called all sorts of nasty names, Susie. So, you know, goggle-eyed whore, naughty whore, all sorts of names like this by women, just women in the public. And these stories are being sent to Thomas Cromwell, you know, to investigate and is how we know about them. They're recorded. But you have family members accusing other family members of saying things about Henry and Anne, you know, priests accusing people. There's just a lot of accusations going on. And unfortunately, not all of them are motivated by an actual real sense of upholding the law. We see that people are doing it to get others in trouble, to take over leases of property. There's all sorts of things, you know, happening at the time. So it's this real fear now that you can say something and that that is going to be seen as treasonous. And people are definitely, I think at one point someone describes that they'd like to use Henry's head like a soccer ball and, you know, all sorts of, and usually the person defends themselves by saying that they were extremely intoxicated. That is the kind of general thing or possessed. That comes up a lot as well possessed or intoxicated when they made these claims, but people are upset, people are confused. It's very clear that the marriage with Anne is not popular. Interestingly, I've just realised as you were saying that, that the oath of succession, when it is formulated in a text that we've got, says that you should consider that Lady Mary born to Queen Catherine, but as a bastard, having told you already that you shouldn't think of her as queen. Anyway, it just seems like an interesting slip. <laughs> oh, that's interesting, yeah. <laughs> I'm sorry, I meant the Dowager Princess. Well, there is one funny story like that. A poor elderly man, I feel like his name was John Carsley possibly, but got himself into big trouble because he was preaching and accidentally, completely accidentally said Queen Catherine, of course, after years of saying Queen Catherine, and then kind of tried to deny that he'd ever said Queen Catherine but then did say, I'm sorry, I meant Queen Anne, she's our only queen. So it's a lot of this going on at this point. One of the other things that you note is happening in 1535 is that Anne fell out with her sister Mary over Mary's second marriage, which is to a, a much sort of lower status husband. 
And I thought it gave us a really interesting insight into Anne's character. And in fact, I'm going to ask your opinion because you say that it betrays how hurt the Queen was and how complicated their relationship had become. And it's also a testament to Anne's sheer determination. But is it also perhaps testament to some of Anne's flaws that we need to admit, really? Yes, yes. And I think other points in the book, I do talk about, you know, that side of Anne, you know, she was a human being like all of us. And I think we have good days and we have bad days. But I feel that that incident was particularly difficult for her because not only did, as you say, Mary marry someone, I suppose it was beneath her station, Anne was not consulted as the head of the Boleyn family, she probably should have been. But I think also the fact that Mary was pregnant when she returns to court And this comes probably only weeks maybe after Anne has lost a baby, tragically loses her baby. And it's often, I've seen it in books set as a miscarriage, but in fact she was seven or eight months pregnant at the time. So this was just incredibly traumatic for Anne, for the couple. And then Mary appears at court very visibly, heavily pregnant, hasn't consulted Anne on this marriage. It's this period of time where things are going kind of downhill for Anne. She's kind of lost support of the French as well. She has opposition at every single corner, you know, people not accepting her legitimacy. And then Mary turns up, oh, I've married this guy and haven't asked you and I'm also pregnant. So I think it was a very challenging situation for Anne. But yes, I agree. Her actions are often counterproductive, especially when she's under stress. This does bring out a kind of reckless, rash side in her that we see. There's plenty of evidence to support that. So, no, I agree with you. I think it does show also her insecurities, which, you know, play a big part in this story, how insecure she is in her position. It's not like Catherine of Aragon, even though she had, of course, many, many challenges, she felt secure in her position, always knew she was the rightful queen, whereas Anne from the get-go is on the sort of back foot and feeling that she needs to protect and defend herself at every moment. So, yeah, it was a difficult time for her. Yes, I suppose because she's been raised by Henry, she can be lowered by Henry as well, and that's very clear to her. You mentioned the French there. What can we learn from the visit of Philippe de Chabot, who's the Count de Brion and Admiral of France, who is negotiating with English in 1535? Yeah, that's a really interesting time as well, because Henry and Anne are so excited that he's coming because they think he's coming to negotiate a marriage between the Princess Elizabeth and Francis I's eldest son. But in the end, it's a very strange sort of episode. The French diplomat, well, Anne feels that the French diplomat doesn't treat her with the respect that her position deserves. She ends up finding out, as does Henry, that they end up, in fact, proposing a marriage between the Lady Mary and one of Francis I's son, which, of course, angers them both. And I think it's at that point that Anne feels that her Frenchness, if we could kind of say it like that, has become a liability. And we see her move much more to focusing on her English heritage after that. And she later on starts promoting a match with the emperor, Charles V, because she's sort of so disheartened with the French because she has, of course, you know, supported them up until that point. But it seems that they have kind of turned their back on her by the end of 1534. That's really interesting. And you say that there's some early mention of Anne's doubts and suspicions of Henry given to Gautier, the Secretary of the Admiral of France. And this is really interesting. I was wondering, why would Anne tell him? There's a function on at court. So there's some dancing and there's some celebrating and Anne ends up talking to the secretary and she kind of reveals that she knows that all eyes are on her and that she is quite stressed about this. She knows she's being watched at every single move and she says that without their help, she kind of is undone. She admits this. And I feel it's that Anne, again, when she's stressed and under pressure, she's normally, you know, her mind is so sharp. But when she's under stress, it becomes jittery. And she does say some things that perhaps she shouldn't have said. But I think it's revealing that that is early 1535. So this is kind of what I was saying before, that we focus on those last few months when we look at Anne's downfall. But in fact, you know, we're talking early 1535, and Anne is aware that things are not as they should be by that point. You talk also much in this book about the relationship between Anne and Mary. So the first thing I want to ask you is, do you put any faith in the oft-repeated claim by Eustace Chapuis, the 
ambassador from the Holy Roman Empire, that Anne planned to kill Mary. Yes, he loves saying that, doesn't he? I don't know how many times he said that Anne <laughs> made, you know, murderous remarks. Again, I can say certainly that we know three definite times where Anne reached out to Mary to try and, you know, extend an olive branch, twice in 1534, once in early 1536. On those three occasions, she was very publicly humiliated, basically, you know, and I can see this from Mary's point of view, of course, as well, you know, and I do feel for her, it was a very difficult situation. But I feel like Anne tried. I feel as though if there were any remarks, and it's very difficult to say, Susie, as you know, because the stories come from about three different people translated into two or three different languages. So it's it's hard to know. But I feel like, and maybe your listeners have also had those days where you've said something out of anger, you know, or sheer frustration, and then you've realised, okay, well, it's a very nice thing to say, and perhaps you've regretted it. But with Anne, with all eyes on her, people watching her, recording what she's saying, she may have said something, you know, that wasn't very nice towards Lady Mary. This has been recorded and, you know, sent to Chapuis, who loves to share these stories. So it's possible that she did say something. I don't think she wanted to kill Lady Mary. I think that's quite ridiculous. And, of course, Chapuis does suggest that she's been accused of that at the end. He says that she's charged with having tried to poison, well, having poisoned Catherine of Aragon and having tried to poison Lady Mary, but that's not on the indictment. So that's just kind of Chapuis' version. So I really don't think that she meant to kill them. Perhaps she said something in frustration, but I think it was just, again, that temper. Yes, and perhaps that's why Henry goes around saying that Anne planned to try and poison his children because he's got these stories passed to him, something that Anne has said in sheer frustration. About that point, when Anne tries that kind of rapprochement early 1536, Anne says something fascinating. She says, by the law of God and the king... She, meaning Mary, ought clearly to acknowledge her error and evil conscience. And it really made me think, because one of the most interesting questions we can ask of Anne is how she squared her adultery with her own conscience. And this piece of evidence suggests to me that she had fully convinced herself that what she did was right, and that in defending her mother, Mary was the one who was erroneous. She's the one who's got an evil conscience. What do you make of that? I really do believe that Anne thought she was guided by God in this. And I don't just say that as kind of words. I feel that she really felt and meant this. She was a very, very pious woman. It's not the side we often see of her, of course. We see the, the sexier kind of side. And in order to know, she was what we call a reformer, but in order to know what she wanted to reform, of course she was very familiar with, you know, Catholic doctrine and traditional Christianity. So I think firstly to say that she was incredibly pious and religious and I think that she felt that all her actions were guided by God. That might explain why she sees that what she's doing is kind of correct and what Mary's doing is not correct. It's difficult without being able to get, of course, inside into her inner landscape. But I feel that it does have something to do with the fact that she thought she was doing the correct thing. She was doing what God wanted her to do, that she was helping the English people, that she was, you know, improving their lives, I suppose. Whereas Mary, I think she probably thought of as quite the opposite, to be honest. What about the stories that Henry was having an affair? These come from Chapuis, as so much does. What do you think of them? Do you feel the evidence that Henry's having an affair is convincing? There's not very much evidence. It's sort of hard to say. And as we know, Henry was a bit of a prude, wasn't he? He wasn't really, like, I think he wanted to have this kind of reputation as princes did at that point. But there are a few times where there's mention, but they're all sort of confusing. It's like Chapuis mentions that, yes, he's showing interest in another woman, but then he kind of not long after says, oh, no, that's kind of fizzled out. That's not happening anymore. And we have these stories that it was Mad Shelton or one of the Queen's cousins that's kind of been put in his way so that he doesn't go off with other women. But I think by late sort of 1535, it does appear that Jane Seymour is already in the picture, although she's not mentioned by name until February of 1536. And of course, that's Chapuis again that mentions her. But it sort of seems like when Anne is pregnant, Henry does take another woman. So by that time, by late 1535, Anne is pregnant again. And, you know, other stories that take place are in 1534 when she's pregnant again. So it, there seems to be a pattern perhaps that when Anne is pregnant, the king does kind of find other women. But the, all the stories are a bit confusing and, and it's really only Chapuis that ever has anything to say about this. I wonder if Henry got to pieces of evidence 
of his impotency from Anne and from Anne of Cleves. And I wonder if actually what we're looking at here isn't someone who's really having loads of torrid carnal affairs, but just quite likes to have a sense that he's desired. Yes, I actually think you're probably correct there. I think it's Eric Ives that calls it um, courtly mistresses or, or something along those lines. And it's more about that game of courtly love than it is actual, you know, sexual relationships for Henry anyway. And I think you're right. I think he absolutely does want to be desired. And I think that he wants to be desired by Anne. And when he feels a little bit later on that perhaps she's desiring other men for certain reasons, this is when we see this game turn completely deadly because you know Henry well enough as I do, Susanna, he doesn't like to be made a fool of. And if he sort of feels that you've personally injured him, he is going to retaliate with all his might. So I think he does want to be desired. And I think another interesting thing kind of to do with that is when Again, it's during their trial, Anne and George's trial, where they're, well, I think this is actually Chapuis that says this again, that they're accused of having laughed at the king's dress, laughed at his ballads. And I think that may be one of the only charges that might be true, to be honest with you, because I think I can see Anne and George so charismatic, so intelligent, and Henry always seeming like he's trying a little bit too hard to me. You know, and I feel that he could have got that sense that Anne was laughing at him behind his back or that she didn't desire him as much, especially after the accident in a tilt yard where he's no longer tilting. He's not demonstrating his masculinity on the tilt yard anymore. And we see him become very vulnerable after that and incredibly insecure. You know, he's always been a bit paranoid, but it sort of ramps up after that time. So that is, yeah, that's interesting. Yeah, that seems absolutely right to me. And you know, his poetry probably was a little bit lumpen by comparison to some of the great poets of the time. And there are these two brilliant people, Anne and George Boleyn, being honest about that in the privacy of their own room. You argue, and in this you follow Dermot McCulloch, that Thomas Cromwell has been assumed to be Anne's ally because of their shared interest in religious reform, but actually that there's little to substantiate it. Confusingly, the source of both opinions is Chapuis once again. What can we make of this? Can you say some more about that? Yes, and I think this was one of the things that was really eye-opening because, of course, the traditional narrative is that Anne and Thomas Cromwell, because of their shared interest, deep interest in religious reform, which is completely true, <laughs> I don't argue against that, that they must have been best friends. And, you know, Professor Ives says that uh, Cromwell is Anne's man. And I just think, that is completely incorrect. Sorry, Professor Ives, with all due respect. The evidence given to support a close relationship, something more than just a formal arrangement, can be very easily disputed. It's basically that he helped organise her coronation. Of course, Henry asked him to do that. Sometimes people petitioned Anne through Cromwell, but that was, of course, part and parcel of his job, his position as right-hand man of Henry, that they were both interested in reform, but that I don't think means that they're best friends. I think the, the clearest and most obvious evidence to support the fact that I think they just had a formal arrangement, that they were not best friends, that they put up with each other because, well, Henry wanted them both for a period and that was enough, is that Thomas Cromwell was not knighted at Anne's coronation. There was varying reports of how many men were knighted, but one account says 81. Thomas Cromwell is not among them. In fact, I think he's charged with collecting the fees that they have to pay or something along those lines. So he is not knighted or raised to the peerage until after Anne's execution. I think Dermot McCulloch calls it a calculated snub, the knighting, and I think it really does feel like that. And especially when we go further back and we realise where Thomas Cromwell started his career at court and his royal service, and someone very important to him was Thomas Wolsey. And we see he borrows themes from Wolsey's heraldry and incorporates that into his own, a very kind of open support of Wolsey. And we can debate how much Anne had to do with Wolsey's downfall. Some people think a lot, some people not so much, but she had something to do with his downfall. And Cromwell, I don't think, ever forgave her for that. And I think that that early history between Cromwell and Anne really complicated and moulded their relationship. It was never an easy relationship. And we have, again, it is Chapuis, you're right, the source, but from 1535, Cromwell is already saying to him, if she knew how close we were, she'd have my head. And this is, again, 1535, where the usual story has them arguing about how to spend the funds from the dissolution of the monasteries. And yes, they did disagree on that point. 
you know, Anne wanted it spent, and I quote, for better uses, so educational purposes, you know, that sort of thing, whereas Cromwell, of course, wanted to line the king's coffer. So, yes, they did disagree about that, and that was the end of any relationship, I think, that point. However, things were already very tense before that, very tense, and we see how he's kind of been kept until Anne is executed, and then suddenly he takes over Anne's father's position as Lord Privy Seal. He's knighted, he's raised to the peerage. You know, he really skyrockets after that. We'll come back to the relationship with Cromwell in a bit. Let's stay chronological. Uh, there's just one thing I want to pick up before we delve into the second part of 1535, which is you suggest there's some evidence of what Anne sounded like. Oh, yes. I just thought this was an interesting thing because it's a letter that I know both of you and I have looked at. We have, I think, four or five, just off the top of my head, letters written in Anne's own hand. So we have others, of course, to her and others that she signed, but the complete letter in her own hand is about four or five letters. And this one is interesting because she's talking about a wardship and she's directing this to Thomas Cromwell because he had an interest in wardships and she appears asking for help with someone that's interfering with the wardship that the king's given her. But the word obligation, she spells with a H at the beginning. So to me, it really sounds, you're much better French accent, Susie, than mine, but like she's got obligation, like a sort of French lilt to her accent, which I think is interesting. And I think if you note, and I do know people that were raised kind of teenage years overseas, and they do pick up elements of the accent. And Anne spent probably, let's say, seven years in France from, you know, about 14 to, you know, 21 or something like that. So I don't think it's unreasonable to think that she would have perhaps picked up on some of that. So I thought that was just yeah, a little interesting tidbit there. I was reading the other day that accents are fixed between about 10 and 13 years old. So possibly in the, that last year of 12 to 13, when she was in Brussels, when she was speaking French, her accent might have been fixed. She was speaking French there as well. Exactly. That's exactly right. Yes. So in the second half of 1535, they go on progress. And your way into all of this, of course, is with your wonderful website on the Tudor Trail, now your wonderful podcast, Talking Tudors, but you've done a lot of thinking about places. And you've done some really interesting work on this progress because you've found discrepancies between the planned route and the actual journey, as it's attested to by the book of accounts and the letters. And in the 16th century, I ought to say, for those listening, people who are sending letters very helpfully at the end inscribe their location. First of all, tell me what you found. What are the discrepancies? Yeah, the 1535 progress is very, very interesting. It's the second longest progress of Henry's reign, and it's very politically significant. The centrepiece is the consecration of three reformist bishops. So it's got, you know, a reformist slant to it. But it's also just a time, of course, where they're visiting friends, visiting people, checking up on people, and really rewarding those people that have supported their marriage, basically. So what happens with the progresses prior to the royal couple going on progress and I never know quite whether this word is geist or geist, but there's a, a kind of itinerary that's published. And it says all the locations where they're going to go to. It tells you the miles that they're traveling each day, roughly about 12 was the average kind of miles because it's a very relaxed ride. And they're traveling through the West Country. This gives people whose houses are going to be visited an opportunity to really get things ready. But it's because people followed them on progress and they didn't always go from the very beginning until the end. So they might join kind of halfway through, like Thomas Cromwell joins them at Winchcombe. So that's the itinerary and it kind of tells you the plan. So we know what they thought they were going to do. And the first part of the journey pretty much follows the plan. But we see that towards the end, they make changes because there is plague as well. So illness, of course, does affect the route, but they also make some other changes and it seems that they make some changes because they're just having a wonderful time. So the return trip is particularly interesting because they're supposed to take a week to go back to Windsor. And in fact, they amble and they take several weeks to get back, even at possibly a month, I think, in the end. So I think that what that progress shows is that there was a real renewed sense of intimacy here. And there's a sense that they're doing what they love. They're getting back to those things, particularly outdoor pursuits, hunting, hawking, riding, I think it's really interesting as well because it shows Anne's incredible physical stamina. Like that's one thing that struck me. Um, we have some wonderful accounts of their stay in Gloucester. And this is summer, peak summer. So the sun is not setting until very late, as you know, of course. And they are coming back by torchlight. So they're leaving early in the morning. They are literally spending the entire day on horseback, having breaks, of course. 
and then arriving at night. And Anne is doing this herself. So she is, I just got a sense of a woman very competitive that pushes herself to the edge, incredibly fit, like as in physically fit. So that, I found that really, really, really interesting. But we have at Thornbury Castle, it's kind of always been assumed that when a delegation came to visit them there, that the king was there. I found that Henry, in fact, took a day trip. He left Cromwell down there to greet the visitors. Another really interesting thing about Thornbury is that I found, and I had never actually read this anywhere else, that John Erskine, who was part of the Scottish, he was a Scottish ambassador, part of Scottish delegation, was in London at the time. And his daughter, Margaret Erskine, was with him. And I found out through another letter that came out a bit later on that she was, in fact, with them at Thornbury. And I thought, this is so fascinating. This is James V's favourite mistress. She is the mother of James Stewart. That's the future Earl of Moray. He was about four at the time. And I just wondered, I wonder how Anne behaved with her because this is James V's mistress. Anne is now Queen of England, but she was Henry's mistress. So I just thought that was really interesting to wonder about how, and we don't know, unfortunately, there's no other you know details about that visit. But that was just something I'd never heard of. And I'd looked at this program so many times and there were still things to be discovered about it. Yeah, that was really interesting. Why were medieval priests so worried that women were going to seduce men with fish that they'd kept in their pants? Who was the first gay activist? And what on earth does the expression sneezing in the cabbage mean? I'll tell you, it's not a cookery technique, that's for sure. Join me, Kate Lister, on Betwixt the Sheets, the history of sex scandal in society, a podcast where we will be bed-hopping throughout time and civilization to bring you the quirkiest and kinkiest stories from history. As promised, there will be... Sex. Anne has said that Henry is not skillful in copulating with a woman and has neither vigour nor potency. And scandal. Everybody just descends onto this crime scene and it's being pulled apart by members of the public sort of as quickly as they can excavate the bodies. And moments which shaped society. Pointy boobs then became a thing and were still a thing into the 1950s. What more could you possibly want? Listen to Betwixt the Sheets today, wherever it is that you get your podcasts. A podcast by History Hit. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Join us this month on Gone Medieval from History Hit. I'm Matt Lewis. And I'm Eleanor Yanaga. This April, dive into our special miniseries. With the help of leading experts, we're tracing the foundations of England by exploring the country's most powerful Anglo-Saxon kingdoms. We'll be looking at Northumbria, Mercia and Wessex, as well as the rulers and their councils who helped shape a nation. Make sure to get every episode by listening and following Gone Medieval from History Hit, wherever you get your podcasts. One thing you also say is that it now seems rather doubtful that Acton Court which has long been thought to have been visited on the 1535 progress, was actually part of it. What do you conclude in the end? Yeah, this is a really difficult one because, as you said, the household accounts list all the places where they eventually did stop. So you can compare that to the itinerary and it's where you find the changes. And Acton Court, goodness me, it's always, you know, everyone always talks about this weekend at Acton Court. And well, the first thing I can say is that it didn't happen on the weekend. Those dates are completely incorrect. If it did happen, I kind of suggest that it 
happened during the week, a kind of midweek visit. To be honest, I feel kind of sorry for the host, Nicholas Points, because he built an entire new wing to greet the couple. And so can you imagine if they didn't end up turning up? So I think it could have possibly happened during the midweek. It was a short stay for one or two nights. He was knighted after that, which is always given as kind of evidence that they did visit. But all I can say is that it doesn't appear in the household accounts. It appears on that original itinerary that was published beforehand. So they intended on visiting him. But whether they did or not is still kind of up for grabs there. By the way, I think the geest word is just an old English version of guest. Oh, there you go. It's an interesting word because it sounds a bit like geist, like spirit or ghost or something, doesn't it? But yeah. So we've had this happy time on progress and the couple seem close and they certainly are and and conceives during this period of time. Perhaps this is the moment to talk about her motto, the most happy, and what you think it actually means. Yes, I was just actually looking at this because I came across another one of her mottos. And I don't know if you've seen this one, Susanna, you may have, but for me and mine, have you come across that one? No, I don't think I've come across for me and mine. I've been having lots of fun discussions with my friend, Dr. Owen Emerson, because we were both like, where has this come from? So this is Camden that says that Anne used the motto for me and mine as well with her falcon badge. So he describes her as having the falcon badge, but then beneath it for me and mine. And interestingly, if you go to the Great Hall of Hampton Court Palace (laughs) and you look up at the Victorian stained glass windows, there it is, Anne Boleyn for me and mine. And I had never noticed that. I've often looked up at the stained glass there and just thought they'd got it wrong. (laughs) Well, there you go. No, well, it appears that Camden says she did, in fact, use that particular motto. Well, it could mean that they've got it from Camden. It doesn't mean that Camden is right. I mean, Camden also says all sorts of things that might not be true. But yes, the most happy. So I've read before that this is an arrogant motto, that it's self-congratulatory, that all these sorts of things. And I think this comes from a misunderstanding of the word happy. Of course, happy, you know, we know what that means to us today. But in the 16th century, it was used more as we would use lucky, for example. And we see this because during that progress, there are so many letters written about Henry and Anne being merry. So the way that we would use happy, they used merry. So the most happy, rather than being something kind of arrogant, I see it as a much more humble acknowledgement of her very lucky position that Henry has raised her to be his queen and not in fact that kind of arrogant like oh I'm the happiest woman in the world so it is interesting that even something like Anne's motto is often you know misconstrued to show that kind of image of her as that arrogant you know woman which I yeah I don't think she was all the time. That's really helpful. You think that Anne's miscarriage which obviously crucially happens in January 1536 must have begun a day earlier than the day Chapuis notes, which is the 29th of January, the day of Catherine of Aragon's funeral. Can you explain your thinking? Yes. Yeah, so when I was looking at that very traumatic, tragic, tragic incident that comes, Catherine of Aragon dies on the 7th of January. I think Anne quickly realises there's a sort of initial celebration, I suppose you could call it. But I think Anne very, very quickly realises that she's completely vulnerable now. You know, she's much more vulnerable than she was. And it's funny, isn't it, that while Catherine of Aragon was alive, Anne was actually safe. And the moment she's gone, Henry's now looking for someone else to blame for all these problems. And that falls on Anne. So the 7th, Catherine of Aragon dies. The 24th, I believe it is, Henry has an accident in the tilt yard that we were talking about earlier. I think very soon after that, Anne begins to, you know, as, as you said, this is, it doesn't have to be an instant thing. Sometimes it takes days, sadly, for women to miscarry. So I think very soon after she does miscarry her child. The reason why I think Chapuis later reports, so he doesn't report on the day, he later reports that it happened on the 29th, which is the day of the funeral of Catherine of Aragon. And when I was looking into it on the actual 29th, he mentions that Henry's already sort of talking that he's not going to have sons with Anne. The timing didn't seem correct if that day Chapuis already knows that Henry's discussing that he's not going to have sons with Anne. The information comes through about three sets of people. Again, it's quite convoluted. So I thought that it was much more likely that it had happened at least the day before, but perhaps even a couple of days before. The sense I got is that Anne was in the process of miscarrying or had already miscarried, which led Henry prompted his kind of tirade about, oh, this I'm not going to have sons by this woman which then allowed time for people to overhear him, to then tell the spies at court, to send it to Chapuis. So it just feels like it's not enough time for it to have happened on the 29th. That's interesting. 
Now, you say at this point, Anne sensed a shift in her relationship with Henry. How do we know that? I mean, he had mistresses before. It's a very good question, because obviously we always need to be careful not to read the story backwards, as I say. But I feel the Anne that I've gotten to know is incredibly observant, firstly. And I feel, like I said, from early 1535, she's already concerned about her relationship. Yes, there is that kind of lovely period while they're in progress that things that are a real escape for them, that period. And of course, increased intimacy because she falls pregnant. So things appear to be going well. But January is a nightmare of a month, I think. And remember that we only hear of Jane Seymour in February, but I think she's already been around since probably the end of 1535. And Anne, of course, would be aware of that. I don't think there's any way that Anne didn't know that. So she's already aware that that's happened. She's concerned because now Catherine of Aragon has died. There is nothing stopping Henry now leaving her to take a new wife. And that element wasn't there before. So when she miscarried in, or had a stillbirth in 1534, Catherine of Aragon was still alive. So in order for Henry to leave her, he would have to admit that he'd made a mistake. He'd have to annul the marriage and then he'd have to go back to Catherine and in that, he'd be really accepting the Pope's authority again. So he's not going to do that. So it's different. It's different because now Catherine is gone and is much more vulnerable. There's this woman that's been on the scene for at least now a couple of months. And if we're to believe accounts that Henry has kind of said to her, well, I'm not going to have a son by you. She knows how preoccupied he is with this idea of a son. So I feel that she realised that it was more serious. However, I don't think that at this point she thought that he would have her executed. I actually think that even while she was in the tower, she still thought that perhaps there was some sort of test and that she would be, you know, saved at the last moment. But I just think that she knew that her relationship was in trouble at that point. How do you square this with your belief that Cromwell was worried about the degree of Anne's influence on Henry a few months later, to the extent that he thought that Anne now posed a mortal threat to him? I think that Thomas Cromwell, again, another genius, really, and incredibly observant. I think he always remembered the part that Anne had played with Wolsey and perhaps the fact that Wolsey had underestimated her and her influence. I also argue that I don't think that Henry is the king that some people portray him to be, that he can be kind of just, you know, told what to do. But I still think that Anne, in the position that she was in, the history that they'd shared, was in a position to perhaps be able to plant a seed that would germinate like so often happened with Henry. And I think Cromwell knew that. And, you know, you know, of course, the famous and very controversial sermon that is preached that basically compares Thomas Cromwell to the biblical trader Haman or Haman, who is hanged. And it's the king's good wife. Ahasuerus or Ahasuerus, the biblical king from the book of Esther. It's a tricky one. Apologies for the killing of that pronunciation. So Henry is compared to that good king. You know, Anne is the good queen Esther and Cromwell is in front of the whole of court just made out compared to this traitor Haman, who is in fact hung in the end. So I think it was from that moment, it was quite clear to Cromwell that this was serious, that this was a serious thing. And I think it does turn deadly then. So I think he's concerned about Anne's influence because he doesn't want to underestimate her. He knows that she's in a position to be able to plant seeds in Henry's mind still, because they still have presumably some level of intimacy. But he's also watching his king and knowing, you know, watching what Henry's doing to see what he wants, because Cromwell is most definitely Henry's man, not Anne's man. And he is totally dedicated to his service. So he's going to do whatever the king wants him to do, basically. That sermon you mentioned is given by John Skip, who is Anne's almoner, which is a kind of chaplain responsible for paying alms. And it's given on Passion Sunday, which is the 2nd of April, 1536. And as you say, there are these stories, the story of Queen Esther and the evil counsellor, and the story of Solomon losing his nobility towards the end of his life because he's taking concubines or taking new wives. As I understand it, you think that Skip was ventriloquizing Anne. And I was just thinking about this because I'm struck by the sources. We've got three drafts of Skip's sermon and one report by Risley, which accords with those drafts, which don't include those two stories, Esther and Solomon. And then we've got one version, which it seems to be an account of what Skip says, which has these stories in. So it occurred to me that one possibility is that they aren't in Skip's draft, they aren't what he was planning to say. Therefore, it's not something he's run past Anne in draft, which means it could have been Skip extemporising. So I'm wondering the extent to which we can actually elide Anne's voice with Skip here. 
Well, it's difficult. And I suppose we could kind of say that about lots of the sources we have. I think if it was completely out of character, then we could say, oh, okay, this doesn't sound like Anne. She would never do that. But to me, that is very Anne-like to realize that things are down and to fight, you know what I mean, to bring this fight to the pulpit, as I say. But you're right, perhaps it was a last minute addition. But even if it was Skip's own kind of, which would have been incredibly daring for him just to decide to do that in front of the king without knowing that he's got Anne's support, I feel like that, wow, that would have been incredibly daring. But even if he hadn't run it by her prior, maybe he perhaps knew that she would support it or that she would be fine with it because they've had discussions about it or, you know, something along those lines because he is her arm and, as you say, presumably they spend time together in discussion about lots of things. So I feel like if he was daring enough to do that off his own back and not consult Anne, perhaps he already knew that that's something that she might support. Perhaps they talked about it. But, yeah, it's a good point to make. Hilary Mantel said that she used words in certain places in her novels where they aren't used in the sources because it was her conviction that words used on record had to be tried off record first. So perhaps we have an instance in which <laughs> Skip, we can't prove any of this, but perhaps Skip was repeating something he'd heard Anne say, even if she hadn't said, go ahead and say this. So we've mentioned Jane if we want to love Anne, do we have to be willing to damn Jane? <laughs> you say that all the evidence points to Jane being willing to be used to oust Anne. Yes, I think to deny Jane that is to really strip her of any kind of you know, power. Like, why can't Jane have also felt like she was doing the right thing? Do you, do you know what I mean? So, no, I don't think we need to hate Jane. I don't think we need to hate Catherine. I don't think we need to hate any of them. I think, again, Jane felt that this was probably, you know, God's will, again, but I also don't think she could have ever imagined that what was coming was going to happen. I think she must have just thought that Anne would be exiled, you know, yes, disgraced, probably sent away like Catherine of Aragon. But I really don't think that she would have thought that Henry would go to the extreme that he did in having her murdered and five other men with her. We can love Anne, admire Anne, and also just be friendly to Jane as well. It's She's a, a difficult one to get to know. I haven't really quite been able to get to know Jane, to be honest with you. But no, I don't think we need to pit them against each other, I guess. She's almost impossible to get to know. I know somebody is working on a biography of her, but it, she is so difficult because the evidence isn't there, because Chapuis' letters are missing for such a period of time when Jane is queen. Anyway, that's another story. So Anne's downfall. So... Cards on the table, you know, I've also written about 1536, and I think we disagree about what the evidence tells us about who was behind Anne's downfall. I'm not convinced that Henry wanted to get rid of Anne. I don't think it's Cromwell's initiative either. I think he's acting on Henry's orders when evidence emerges that implies Anne has been unfaithful. So I'm going basically with the cock-up version of history. I think that Henry was convinced of Anne's guilt, or at least sufficiently provoked by the possibility that it might be true to order her death. I feel that you're more drawn to the conspiracy version of history. Um, so talk me through your reading of the sources. How much do you attribute the downfall to Cromwell? How much was he acting on Henry's orders? And do you think Henry really wanted to get rid of Anne? To be honest, I think Anne died because Henry wanted her dead. I really, really got that sense from everything that I looked at. And in fact, it was one of the more shocking aspects to me when I realised that, in fact, he pursued her death with the same kind of vigour that he'd pursued to marry her. You know, and that's my interpretation of it, of course, and we've all got lots of different interpretations and we could still be friendly to one another. <laughs> we don't need to, you know. The sense that I got and from what I read and from spending three and a half years just in this period, so 1535 to 1536, is that for many reasons that I kind of outline in the book, Henry felt that Anne deserved the punishment. So I don't think that he thought she was guilty of having, you know, multiple affairs with five different men that went for 27 months, but no one noticed somehow. You know, I don't think he thought she was guilty of that. I really don't think he thought that she would conspire to kill him, which is, of course, the charge that gets her killed, the treason charge. But I do think that he felt that she had betrayed him and that she was deserving of that ultimate punishment. I really do feel that. And I think his behavior really shows that he doesn't. And Shapui has a great quote, and I can't remember it, but it's kind of like I've never seen anyone wear their horns so happily like Henry. And and he describes how Henry's out partying and he's, you know, dancing with women and he's doing all this sort of stuff. And he's taking it a little bit too far. Like with the five men, perhaps we can believe that because Anne was vulnerable to those charges. She was Henry's mistress. She came in as the mistress. 
But Henry says something like she slept with a hundred men and to me it becomes kind of farcical because Henry, he's a role player. He takes on roles. We see him do this from a child. He loves theatrics and I feel like he takes on that role quite eagerly but then takes it a little bit too far and it leaves people questioning the integrity of the whole case against Anne. So I don't feel that the evidence suggests or points to Henry having believed it, believed the charges against Anne, but I do feel that he felt that she had done enough to warrant being executed. And this, I suppose, needs a kind of understanding of the relationship, which is what makes it tricky to kind of try and nut down. But I think that he was quite vulnerable with her during his relationship and he kind of opened up to her during the relationship. And as we know, she had promised sons and promised stability for the Tudor dynasty and really in Hen- and I'm talking from Henry's perspective, all that she delivered was another daughter and a whole lot of trouble trouble, trouble, trouble. Like this is, you know, one challenge after the other that they faced. And as I said, I think after his accident, he became even more kind of vulnerable and more insecure. And he looked around at those men surrounding Anne all the time, you know, praising her and whatnot and felt very vulnerable and thought perhaps that she was in fact, maybe harboring some desires for those men or the very least she's laughing at him. Who's she laughing with? I think that all of that in the end really just grated on him and eroded that love that I think they did once share at one point. She was everything as a mistress, I think, to him, ticked every single box, but just did not live up to his completely impossible expectations as a queen. I think it's Ives that says something along the lines of, you know, she had to behave like a queen, but continue to challenge like a mistress because of the position that she was in. And I think that was incredibly difficult for Anne, who was not trained to be a queen. So I think there's a lot going on, but to me, I think the evidence suggests that Henry felt that he was right in his decision to have her executed because maybe she hadn't had, you know, intercourse with five men, including her own brother, but she had certainly betrayed him in other ways. And that was sufficient for him, I think, to get rid of her. And I feel like he just closed his heart off to her and kind of closed that chapter and moved on, as we know, quite quickly being engaged to Jane the following day. So I agree, it's difficult because, you know, there are lots of different theories, lots of ways to look at this. And with Thomas Cromwell, I feel that, as you say, he was definitely acting on Henry's orders. I think he offered a new possibility to Henry that Henry perhaps hadn't thought of himself, a more permanent removal of Anne. She's not Catherine. She has no support. There's nobody that's going to be able to get her out of this. You know, people like to say, oh, her father didn't do anything. What could he do? What could he do when the King of England has decided that he's going to have you executed? There was nothing that he could do. She had no Emperor Charles V backing her. I often wonder if Catherine had been an English wife, what would have happened to her and Mary, to be honest? I do wonder that often. Well, even Catherine herself thought she was going to be martyred after Thomas More and John Fisher died. She writes saying she thinks that she and Mary will be holy martyrs. So she was expecting death as well. Well, listen, look, actually, we've worked out that we're on the same page almost all the way. We think Cromwell's acting on Henry's orders. I completely agree that Henry decides by the end that Anne deserves the punishment. Just a question of when we think he decides that. So Anne was arrested and taken to the Tower on the 2nd of May, 1536. And we have these snippets of conversation and actions as reported by the ladies around her to Sir William Kingston, Constable of the Tower, who's then sending them in letters to Cromwell. What do you make of Anne's behaviour and state of mind when she's in the Tower? It's very erratic from the get-go, but you can understand why it's erratic when you get to this point, I think. So when she arrives, she kind of falls to her knees and is just pleading her innocence and tell Henry that I'm innocent. And then she She thinks she's going to a dungeon, so she discovers that she's not. She's, in fact, in her lovely Queen's apartments where she stayed prior to her coronation, which unfortunately are not there anymore, sadly. I really wish they were, but they're not there at the Tower. So she's staying in somewhat comfort. She has four women around her, as you've mentioned, that are all spies. I don't know which one exactly, but one of them is spying for Chapuis, definitely sending direct communication with Chapuis. The others are telling Kingston everything. Kingston's own wife is one of the women. So they're noting everything down, and they are pushing Anne to speak. So she is already in a very fragile state. Her behavior is erratic. She's laughing one moment. She's sort of crying the next. She wants to live one moment. She wants to die the next moment. But when she gets in, when she first arrives, she sort of peppers Kingston with questions. And it's interesting to hear the people that she's thinking about. So immediately she asks about her father, first person, her brother, her mother. You know, I think this again shows that this is a a close-knit family and it's quite sad that she's concerned. Her mother is sick at this point, 
So Elizabeth Berlin was unwell. I don't know exactly what she had, but she had quite a terrible cough. So Anne's obviously concerned that this is going to aggravate her illness. And we know that both Thomas and Elizabeth are dead within two years of Anne and George's execution, which is really tragic. Whether that illness got worse or not, I'm not sure. But she's asking questions. She wants to know why she's in there. She knows that she's been accused of adultery with two men, but she doesn't know the full story. And I think they're keeping her in the dark to make her talk. And she does talk. She talks unguardedly. She talks about an incident that occurred with Sir Henry Norris. She also talks about a man called Francis Weston, who is immediately arrested once the women tell Kingston and Kingston tells Cromwell. There are further arrests after that. We're not sure how those men sort of became implicated because as far as we know, Anne doesn't mention them during her time in the Tower. So, But she is one moment resigned to the fact that she's going to die. I think one of the saddest moments, Susie, is when she is at dinner with William Kingston. This is quite late. This is, I think, the 17th of May, I believe. And she's having a meal with Kingston and she says that she's in hope of life and that she might be sent to a nunnery. And that same morning, she'd been with Thomas Cranmer. So it's been suggested that Cranmer may have offered her some sort of deal because the following day her marriage is annulled at Lambeth Palace. So it's possible that Cranmer said, you know, say that there was an impediment to your marriage and we'll let you live. You can go to a nunnery. What I was wondering is whether Cranmer was aware that Henry was not going to keep his part of the deal. You know, Cranmer and Anne always appeared close and he was certainly one that attempted to intervene, although very quickly realised there was no point and, you know, changed his tune straight away. But I think that's so sad that she thought perhaps even at that late point that she might still be saved. Yeah, so it's very telling. I hope Cranmer didn't know. <laughs> I know. I'm, I'm the same. I just think, oh, and then what must he have thought when he heard that she wasn't going to be saved? I always think, and then he was at Henry's deathbed. I think that's really interesting. I always wonder what conversations may have happened or what he may have said to him at that last moment. A letter which is purportedly by Anne while she was in the Tower. What makes you convinced that it was actually written by her? Well, I'm not actually convinced, to be honest. I like to keep an open mind with this letter. It wasn't really in the scope of this work to delve deep into this. Other people have done it. A good friend of mine, Sandra Fasoli, has written a really interesting book that I recommend people read if they want to read more into this because she's delved into it really deeply and has some interesting ideas about it. So I basically mention it because, yes, we have this letter 6th of May, I believe it is dated 6th of May. It's definitely not in Anne's hand. But that doesn't mean that she couldn't have dictated, of course, to someone. I think most historians conclude that it is an Elizabethan forgery, I think is the general kind of consensus. We certainly don't have a record in Kingston's letters of Anne writing to Henry. She does, in fact, request to write to Thomas Cromwell. And Kingston says, tell it to me and I'll write it down. So, you know, it's a possibility. Kingston letters, they're severely damaged as well. So it's possible that we've missed something or that it's just not in there. So it's possible that she requested, I think she definitely would have requested to write a letter at least to Henry. I can't see how she wouldn't have. But we don't have the evidence to say that, yes, she did write a letter to Henry. We know she wanted to write to Cromwell. So it's a letter where she basically says, I know why this is happening. She pretty much says that it's because of Jane and that she's known about Jane for long, as the king knows. It's a really interesting letter because it has a postscript on the back. And so Sandra Fasoli goes into some interesting ideas that she has about who may have come to take that letter down for Anne, why it may never have reached Henry, would it have made a difference had it reached Henry? I don't think so. But, you know, it's interesting to think about these things. The confusing part is that it exists in several versions. So people have gotten very confused with the different kind of versions. As you know, it happens so many times with letters from this period because they copy them for records and all sorts of things. So I cannot say 100% that Anne wrote that. Does it sort of match the character of Anne? Possibly, yes. So if it was an Anne, it certainly was someone who knew her, I feel, because they kind of do get into her head. But it has some strange things, like she refers to herself as Anne Boleyn. You know, if the name Anne Boleyn has ever kind of moved you, I don't know, would she have referred to herself as Anne Boleyn? Those sorts of things, yeah. Where we're absolutely in agreement is Anne's innocence. You talk about Anne's trial and you do a very good forensic look at the alleged offences. Tell us about how they may be discounted. Yeah, so that was one thing I wanted to do, and I'm not obviously the first person to do it. Ives does it, I think, in his book too, although I did find some discrepancies with Ives' work and what I had, which in fact just shows that even more of the charges can be discredited. So her trial, yes, takes place on the 15th of May. She's tried on the same day as her brother, George Boleyn, and is tried first. 
in the hall at the Tower of London, which no longer exists. Accounts vary, but it appears that there were a lot of people up to, let's say, even 2,000 people witness here on these special stands that are built. Her uncle, the Duke of Norfolk, is presiding. He's representing the king. The king is not present at this particular trial. They're tried by a jury of all their peers and is brought in by two of her ladies and the constable of the town, the lieutenant of the tower. She's given a chair to sit in to listen to the charges read against her. This is the first time, by the way, that she has heard them in full. So the full indictment is read out. She apparently listens very calmly and pleads not guilty to all charges. From various accounts, we can piece together that she seems to have defended herself incredibly eloquently. We know that Anne was capable of that, incredibly intelligent, very witty. I did say her behaviour was quite erratic in the tower, but she seems to have really calmed for this particular trial and put on an incredible performance. So the charges, they span 27 months, so pretty much her entire reign, really. And the Crown gives dates of when Anne is supposed to have had multiple instances of adultery with the five men that we know. She's also said to have given gifts to the men. So there are two times where she's said to have given them gifts to kind of, you know, lure them or something into a bed. But one is laughably New Eve, where she's, of course, giving gifts to people. So it's, it's kind of like a ridiculous charge. She's also accused of having plotted to kill the king. So at some point said that she doesn't love him, that she loves the men, and that when Henry's dead, she's going to marry one of them. So that's the treason charge. That actually was supposed to have happened on the day or the day after that Catherine of Aragon has died. So that's what Anne is apparently doing the day after Catherine's death. She's plotting to kill Henry. And what the Crown cleverly does is adds this kind of catch-all phrase of it happened on this day, but it might have happened on a day before, a day after. This case was completely flawed. I don't know who put this together. Really, if it was Cromwell, I'm not sure what happened to him that day because, you know, you can just go through. And I know where the court was for most of this period of time. And I would say 80% of the times where it said Anne was at Greenwich having sex with whoever, she was nowhere near Greenwich. And so I went through and looked at everything and I kind of listed in the book as to where the court was or where certain people were. At other times, she'd just literally given birth. Another time, she'd just had her stillbirth. Another time, she was pregnant. I don't know. It just seems highly unlikely that she's going to be having all these liaisons. They mainly occurred at Greenwich and Whitehall, I think, from memory. But a couple happened at Eltham as well. So they're over about four or five different locations and over this period of 27 months. But she pleads not guilty to everything and gives this very eloquent defence. But of course, it's found guilty. We're not going to follow her all the way to her death today. But I want to ask you one question to kind of wrap this all up, which is something we've alluded to throughout the conversation, which is about the tricky nature of the evidence. This seems to be an instance where, you know, the teenage GCSE here, history word bias seems deeply relevant. You've got William Latimer, everything Anne Boleyn did was golden for the good of the poor, as for the good of learning. Henry Clifford, who's an English Catholic hostile to Anne, Anne was vicious. She was trying to pull Mary down. She physically attacked Jane Seymour. Or the accounts are uncorroborated. The line from Chapuis that you take to mean that Jane was asking Henry to make her his wife is only found in that one letter. We've got lines in Lancelot de Carle that are only in that source. We have no way of backing them up. How have you picked your way through all of this? <laughs> this was the most difficult thing. And I think this is why it took me so long. I don't know how people write full biographies of people. Imagine it took me three and a half years plus the decade that I already had beforehand to talk about this 18-month period. So it's very, very difficult. And I think in a way, you're right, there are some that are just sort of single sources that we can't corroborate. Again, I think it comes down to kind of reading widely, broadening the perspective, reading as much of it as you can, immersing yourself in this period. Then you get a sort of sense and this may not sound very like historian-like, but a sort of gut sense, a visceral sense of whether what you are hearing is even kind of possible. Does this match with the person that you're looking at? Would this be in the realm of possibility? I don't know. There's so many things that come into it. And after so long in the period, I kind of know a lot of the myths and the, you know, all of that very well, that it was still a very difficult job to try and piece together because, as you say, sometimes it's just one source. And without Chapuis, we would literally almost know nothing. So thank goodness that we have what we have from him and it all chances to try and corroborate, yes, is very, very important, but also just immersing yourself so that you get that sense of whether something's even sort of possible or not. 
but it was very challenging. Susanna, very challenging. Well, thank you for doing the work and thank you for sharing the fruits of it with us today. And for those who want to really read the, everything you've done on this, they should pick up, of course, a copy of The Final Year of Anne Boleyn. It's a really interesting, deep reassessment of this most important year. Thank you so much. Oh, thank you for having me. It's been an absolute pleasure. And thanks to my producer, Rob Weinberg, my researcher, Esther Arnott, and Anisha Dever, who edited this episode. And thanks to you for listening to Not Just the Tudors from History Hit. We're always eager to hear your suggestions for podcast subjects. So drop me a line at notjustthetudors at historyhit.com or on Twitter at notjusttudors. Also, if you're in need of an extra hit between podcasts, do sign up to our newsletter, Tudor Tuesday. Details of how to do that are in the notes below this podcast. And please rate, rank, bestow multiple stars and comment on this podcast wherever you listen, including on Spotify. It really helps more people find not just the Tudors. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Sick of being upsold at gyms? My guy, you're currently a base member. For $90 more, I can upgrade you to our Shred membership. For $130 more, you'll be a swole member. And for just $300 more, you'll reach Sweat Platinum. At Planet Fitness, you'll get energy without the upsell. Never pushy, always free fitness training and equipment for every workout. It's fitness that fits your budget. Join Planet Fitness for just $1 down and $10 a month. Cancel anytime. Deal ends Friday, May 10th. See Home Club for details. History is full of extraordinary people, the Tudors being just a handful. In my latest film on History Hit, we meet Bess of Hardwick and go inside the incredible house that she built, a house that defines the elegance and grandeur of the Elizabethan age, a house fit for a woman who climbed to the top of the Tudor social ladder. To find out more about the life of Bess and many more fascinating figures from the past, sign up via the link in the description with the code TUDORS for an exclusive discount.